Chapter Three of Lorelei of the Red Mist by Lee Brackett and Ray Bradbury. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. They raised Falga in the opal dawn, a citadel of basalt cliffs rising sheer from the burning sea, with a long arm holding a harbor full of ships. There were green fields inland and beyond, cloaked in the eternal mists of Venus. The mountains of white clouds lifted spaceward. Stark wished that he had never seen the mountains of white cloud. Then, looking at his hands, lean and strong on his long thighs, he wasn't so sure. He thought of Ron waiting for him. Anger, excitement, a confused violence of emotion set him pacing nervously. Budeg sat quietly, withdrawn, waiting. The long ship threaded the crowded moorings and slid into place alongside a stone quay. Men rushed to make it fast. They were human men, as Stark judged humans, like Budig and himself. They had the shimmering silver hair and fair skin of the plateau peoples, the fine-cut faces and straight bodies. They wore leather collars with metal tags, and they went naked like beasts, and they were gaunt and bowed with labor. Here and there a man with pale blue-green hair and resplendent harness stood godlike above the swarming masses. Stark and Budag went ashore. They might have been prisoners or honored guests, surrounded by their escort from the ship. Streets ran back from the harbor, twisting and climbing crazily up the cliffs. Houses climbed on each other's backs. It had begun to rain, the heavy steaming downpour of Venus, and the moist heat brought out the choking stench of people, too many people. They climbed, ankle-deep in water sweeping down the streets that were half-stairway. Thin naked children peered out of the houses, out of narrow alleys. Twice they passed through market squares where women with blank faces of defeat drew back from the stalls of coarse food to let the party through. There was something wrong. After a while Stark realized it was the silence. In all that horde of humanity, no one laughed, or sang, or shouted. Even the children never spoke above a whisper. Stark began to feel a little sick. Their eyes had a look in them. He glanced at Budig and away again. The waterfront streets ended in a sheer basalt face honeycombed with galleries. Stark's party entered them, still climbing. They passed level after level of huge caverns, open to the sea. There was the same crowding, the same stench, the same silence. Eyes glinted in the half-light. Bare feet moved furtively on stone. Somewhere a baby cried thinly, and was hushed at once. They came out on the cliff-top into clean high air. There was a city here. Broad streets, lined with trees, low rambling villas of the black rock set in walled gardens, drowned in brilliant vines and giant ferns and flowers. Naked men and women worked in the gardens, or hauled carts of rubbish through the alleys, or hurried on errands, slipping furtively across the main streets where they intersected the mews. The party turned away from the sea, heading toward an even palace that sat like a crown above the city. The steaming rain beat on Stark's bare body, and up here you could get the smell of the rain, even through the heavy perfume of the flowers. You could spell Venus in the rain, musky and primitive and savagely alive. 
a fecund giantess with passion flowers in her outstretched hands stark set his feet down like a panther and his eyes burned a smoky amber they entered the palace of ron she received them in the same apartment where stark had come to after the crash through a broad archway he could see the high bed where his old body had lain before the life went out of it the red sea steamed under the rain outside the rusty fog coiling languidly through the open arches of the gallery ron watched them lazily from a raised couch set massively into the wall her long sparkling legs sprawled arrogantly across the black spider silk draperies this time her tabard was a pale yellow her eyes were still the color of shoal water still amused still secret still dangerous stark said so you made me do it after all and you're angry she laughed her teeth showing white and pointed as bone needles her gaze held stark's there was nothing casual about it stark's hawk eyes turned to molten yellow like hot gold and did not waver Budeg stood like a bronze spear, her forearms crossed beneath her bare sharp breasts. Two of Ron's palace guards stood behind her. Stark began to walk toward Ron. She watched him come. She let him get close enough to reach out and touch her, and then she said slyly, It's a good body, isn't it? Stark looked at her for a moment. Then he laughed. He threw back his head and roared, and struck the great corded muscles of his belly with his fist. Presently he looked straight into Ron's eyes and said, I know you. She nodded. We know each other. Sit down, Hugh Stark. She swung her long legs over to make room, half erect now, looking at Budeg. Stark sat down. He did not look at Budeg. Rand said, Will your people surrender now? Budag did not move, not even her eyelids. If Fallon is dead, yes. And if he's not? Budag stiffened. Stark did too. Then, said Budag quietly, they'll wait. Until he is? Or until they must surrender? Ron nodded. To the guards, she said, see that this woman is well-fed and well-treated. Budog and her escorts had turned to go when Stark said, Wait. The guards looked at Ron, who nodded, and glanced quizzically at Stark. Stark said, Is Fallon dead? Ron hesitated. Then she smiled. No. You have the most damnably tough mind, Stark. You struck deep, but not deep enough. He may still die. But no, he's not dead. She turned to Budeg and said, with easy mockery, "'You needn't hold anger against Stark. I'm the one who should be angry.' Her eyes came back to Stark. They didn't look angry. Stark said, "'There's something else. Conan, the Conan that used to be before Falga.' Budag's Conan. "'Yeah. Why did he betray his people?' Ron studied him. Her strange pale lips curved her sharp white teeth glistening wickedly with barbed humor. Then she turned to Budeg. Budeg was still standing like a carved image, but her smooth muscles were rigid with tension, and her eyes were not the eyes of an image. Conan or Stark, said Ron. She's still Budeg, isn't she? All right, I'll tell you. 
Conan betrayed his people because I put it into his mind to do it. He fought me. He made a good fight of it. But he wasn't quite as tough as you are, Stark. There was a silence. For the first time since entering the room, Hugh Stark looked at Budig. After a moment she sighed and lifted her chin and smiled. A deep, faint smile. The guards walked out beside her, but she was more erect and lighter of step than either of them. "'Well,' said Ron, when they were gone. "'And what about you?' Hugh Stark called Conan. "'Have I any choice?' "'I always keep my bargains.' "'Then give me my dough and let me clear the hell out of here.' "'Sure. That's what you want?' "'That's what I want. You could stay a while, you know. With you.' Ron lifted her frosty white shoulders. "'I'm not promising half my kingdom, or even part of it. "'But you might be amused. "'I got no sense of humor. "'Don't you even want to see what happens to Crom Dew?' "'Stark got up. "'He said savagely, "'The hell with Crom Dew. "'And Budag. "'And Budag.' "'He stopped, "'then fixed Ron with uncompromising yellow eyes. "'No, not Budag. "'What are you going to do to her?' Nothing. Don't give me that. I say again, nothing. Whatever is done, her own people will do. What do you mean? I mean that little dagger in the sheath will be rested, cared for, and fattened for a few days. Then I shall take her aboard my own ship and join the fleet before Crom do. Budag will be made quite comfortable at the masthead, where her people can see her plainly. She will stay there until the rock surrenders. It depends on her own people how long she stays. She'll be given water. Not much, but enough. Stark stared at her. He stared at her a long time. Then he spat deliberately on the floor and said in a perfectly flat voice, How soon can I get out of here? Ron laughed, a small, casual chuckle. Humans, she said are so damned queer. I don't think I'll ever understand them. She reached out and struck a gong that stood in a carved frame beside the couch. The soft, deep, shimmering note had a sad quality of nostalgia. Ron lay back against the silken cushions and sighed. Goodbye, Hugh Stark. A pause, then regretfully, Goodbye, Conan. They had made good time along the rim of the Red Sea. One of Ron's galleys had taken them to the edge of the southern ocean and left them on a narrow shingle beach under the cliffs. From there they had climbed to the rim rock and gone on foot. Hugh Stark called Conan and four of Ron's arrogant shining men. They were supposed to be guide and escort. They were courteous, and they kept pace uncomplainingly, though Stark marched as though the devil were pricking his heels. They were armed, and Stark was not. Sometimes, very faintly, Stark was aware of Ron's mind touching his with the velvet delicacy of a cat's paw. Sometimes he started out of his sleep with her image sharp in his mind, her lips touched with a mocking, secret smile. He didn't like that. He didn't like it at all. But he liked even less the picture that stayed with him waking or sleeping, the picture he wouldn't look at. The picture of a tall woman with hair like loose fire on her neck, walking on light proud feet between her guards. 
she'll be given water Rand said not much but enough stark gripped the solid squareness of the box that held his million credits and set the miles reeling backward from under his sandals on the fifth night one of ron's men spoke quietly across the campfire tomorrow he said we'll reach the pass stark got up and went away by himself to the edge of the rim rock that fell sheer to the burning sea he sat down the red fog wrapped him like a mist of blood he thought of the blood on Budeg's breast the first time he saw her. The thought of the blood on his knife, crusted and dried. He thought of the blood poured rank and smoking into the gutters of Crom Dew. The fog has to be red, he thought. Of all the goddamn colors in the universe, it has to be red. Red like Budeg's hair. He held out his hands and looked at them because he could still feel the silken warmth of that hair against his skin there was nothing there now but the old white scars of another man's battles he set his fists against his temples and wished for his old body back again the little stunted abortion that had clawed and scratched its way to survival through sheer force of mind a most damnably tough mind ron had said yeah it had to be tough but a mind was a mind. It didn't have emotions. It just figured out something coldly and then went ahead and never questioned, and it controlled the body utterly, because the body was the only worthless machinery that carried the mind around. Worthless, yeah. The few women he'd ever looked at had told him that, and he hadn't even minded much. The old body hadn't given him any trouble. He was having trouble now. Stark got up and walked. Tomorrow we reach the pass. Tomorrow we go away from the Red Sea. There are nine planets and the whole damn belt. There are women on all of them. All shapes, colors, and sizes. Human, semi-human, and God knows what. With a million credits, a guy could buy half of them. And with Conan's body, he could buy the rest. What's a woman, anyway? Only a... Water. She'll be given water. Not much, but enough. Conan reached out and took hold of a spire of rock, and his muscles stood out like knotted ropes. Oh, God, he whispered. What's the matter with me? Love. It wasn't God who answered. It was Ron. He saw her plainly in his mind, heard her voice like a silver bell. Conan was a man, Hugh Stark. He was whole, body and heart and brain. He knew how to love, and with him it wasn't women, but one woman, and her name was Budeg. I broke him, but it wasn't easy. I can't break you. Stark stood for a long, long time. He did not move, except that he trembled. Then he took his belt from the box containing his million credits and threw it out as far as he could over the cliff edge. The red mist swallowed it up. He did not hear it strike the surface of the sea. Perhaps in that sea there was no splashing. He did not wait to find out. He turned back along the rim rock to a place where he remembered a cleft or chimney leading down and the four shining men who wore Ron's harness came silently out of the heavy, luminous night and ringed him in. 
their sword points caught sharp red glimmers from the sky stark had nothing on him but a kilt and sandals and a cloak of tight-woven spider silk that shed the rain ron sent you he said the men nodded to kill me again they nodded the blood drained out of stark's face leaving it gray and stony under the bronze his hand went to his throat over the gold fastening of his cloak the four men closed in like dancers stark loosened his cloak and swung it like a whip across their faces it confused them for a second for a heartbeat no more but long enough stark left two of them to tangle their blades in the heavy fabric and leaped aside a sharp edge slipped and turned along his ribs and then he reached in low and caught a man around the ankles and used the thrashing body for a flail the body was strangely light as though the bones in it were no more than rigid membrane like a fish if he had stayed to fight they would have finished him in seconds they were fighting men and quick but stark didn't stay he gained his moment's grace and used it they were hard on his heels their points all but pricking his back as he ran but he made it along the rim rock out along a narrow tongue that jutted over the sea and then outward far outward into red fog and dim fire that rolled around his plummeting body oh god he thought if i guessed wrong and there is a beach the breath tore out of his lungs his ears cracked went dead he held his arms out beyond his head the thumbs locked together his neck braced forward against the terrific upward push he struck the surface of the sea there was no splash dim coiling fire that drifted with infinite laziness around him caressing his body with slow tingling sparks a feeling of lightness as though his flesh had become one with the drifting fire a sense of suffocation that had no basis in fact gave way gradually to a strange exhilaration there was no shock of impact no crushing pressure merely a cushioning softness like dropping into a bed of compressed air stark felt himself turning end over end pinwheel fashion and then that stopped so that he sank quietly and without haste to the bottom or rather into the crystalline upper reaches of what seemed to be a forest he could see it spreading away along the downward sloping floor of the ocean into the vague red shadows of distance slender fantastic trunks upholding a maze of delicate shining branches without leaves or fruit they were like trees exquisitely molded from ice transparent holding the lambent shifting fire of the strange sea stark didn't think they were or ever had been alive more like coral he thought or some vagary of mineral deposit beautiful though like something you'd see in a dream beautiful silent and somehow deadly he couldn't explain that feeling of deadliness nothing moved in the red drifts between the trunks there was nothing about the trees themselves it was just something he sensed he began to move among the upper branches following the downward drop of the slope he found that he could swim quite easily or perhaps it was more like flying the dense gas buoyed him up almost balancing the weight of his body 
so that it was easy to swoop along, catching a crystal branch and using it as a lever to throw himself forward to the next one. He went deeper and deeper into the heart of the forbidden southern ocean. Nothing stirred. The fairy forest stretched limitless ahead, and Stark was afraid. Ron came into his mind abruptly. Her face, clearly outlined, was full of mockery. I'm going to watch you die, Hugh Stark called Conan. But before you die, I'll show you something. Look. Her face dimmed, and in its place was Chrome Dew, rising bleak into the red fog. The long ship's broken and sunk in the harbor, and Ron's fleet around it in a shining circle. One ship in particular, the flagship. The vision in Stark's mind rushed toward it, narrowed down to the masthead platform. To the woman who stood there, naked, erect, her body lashed tight with thin, cruel cords. A woman with red hair blowing in the slow wind, the blue eyes that looked straight ahead like a falcon's, at Crom Dew. Ron's laughter ran across the picture and blurred it like a ripple of ice-cold water. "'You'd have done better,' she said." to take the clean steel when I offered it to you. She was gone, and Stark's mind was empty and cold as the mind of a corpse. He found that he was standing still, clinging to a branch, his face upturned as though by some blind instinct, his sight blurred. He had never cried before in all his life, or prayed. There was no such thing as time, down there in the smoky shadows of the sea-bottom, it might have been minutes or hours later that Hugh Stark discovered he was being hunted. There were three of them, slipping easily among the shining branches. They were pale golden, almost phosphorescent, about the size of large hounds. Their eyes were huge, jewel-like in their slim, sharp faces. They possessed four members that might have been legs and arms, retracted now against their arrowing bodies. Golden membranes spread wing-like from head to flank, and they moved like wings, balancing expertly the thrust of the flat, powerful tails. They could have closed in on him easily, but they didn't seem to be in any hurry. Stark had sense enough not to wear himself out trying to get away. He kept on going, watching them. He discovered that the crystal branches could be broken, and he selected himself one with a sharp forked tip, shoving it swordwise under his belt. He didn't suppose it would do much good, but it made him feel better. He wondered why the things didn't jump him and get it over with. They looked hungry enough, the way they were showing him their teeth. But they kept about the same distance away, in a sort of crescent formation, and every so often the ones on the outside would make a tentative dart at him, then fall back as he swerved away. It wasn't like being hunted so much as... Stark's eyes narrowed. He began suddenly to feel much more afraid than he had before, and he wouldn't have believed that possible. The things weren't hunting him at all. They were hurting him. There was nothing he could do about it. He tried stopping and they swooped in and snapped at him, working expertly together so that while he was trying to stab one of them with his clumsy weapon, the others were worrying his heels like sheepdogs at a recalcitrant weather. Stark, like the weather, 
bowed to the inevitable and went where he was driven the golden hounds showed their teeth in animal laughter and sniffed hungrily at the thread of blood he left behind him in the slow red coils of fire after a while he heard music it seemed to be some sort of harp with a strange quality of vibration in the notes it wasn't like anything he'd ever heard before perhaps the gas of which the sea was composed was an extraordinarily good conductor of sound with a property of diffusion that made the music seem to come from everywhere at once softly at first like something touched upon a dream and then as he drew closer to the source swelling into a racing rippling flood of melody that wrapped itself around his nerves with a demoniac shiver of ecstasy the golden hounds began to fret with excitement spreading their shining wings driving him impatiently faster through the crystal branches stark could feel the vibration growing in him the very fibers of his muscles shuddering in sympathy with the unearthly harp he guessed there was a lot of the music he couldn't hear too high too low for his ears to register but he could feel it he began to go faster not because of the hounds but because he wanted to the deep quivering in his flesh excited him he began to breathe harder partly because of increased exertion and some chemical quality of the mixture he breathed made him slightly drunk the thrumming harp song stoked and stung him waking a deeper darker music and suddenly he saw budag clearly half veiled and mystic in the candlelight of fallon's dun smooth curving bronze her hair loose fire about her throat a great stab of agony went through him he called her name once and the harp song swept it up and away and then suddenly there was no music any more and no forest and nothing but cold embers in stark's heart he could see everything quite clearly in the time it took him to float from the top of the last tree to the floor of the plain he had no idea how long a time that was it didn't matter it was one of those moments when time doesn't have any meaning the rim of the forest fell away in a long curve that melted glisteningly into the spark-shot sea from it the plain stretched out a level glassy floor of black obsidian the spew of some long-dead volcano or was it dead it seemed to stark that the light here was redder more vital as though he were close to the source from which it sprang as he looked farther over the plain the light seemed to coalesce into a shimmering curtain that wavered like the heat veils that dance along the mercurian twilight belt at high noon for one brief instant he glimpsed a picture on the curtain a city black shining fantastically turreted the gigantic reflection of a titan's dream then it was gone and the immediate menace of the foreground took all of stark's attention he saw the flock herded by more of the golden hounds and he saw the shepherd with the harp held silent between his hands the flock moved sluggishly phosphorescently one hundred two hundred silent limping floating warriors drifting down the red dimness in pairs singly or in pallid clusters they came the hounds winged silently leisurely around them 
channeling them in tides that sluiced toward the fantastic Eben city. The shepherd stood, a crop of obsidian, turning his sharp pale face. His sharp, aquamarine eyes found stark. His silvery hand leapt beckoning over hard threads, striking them a blow. Reverberations ran out, seized stark, shook him. He dropped his crystal dagger. Hot screens of fire exploded in his eyes. Bubbles whirled and danced in his eardrums. He lost all muscular control. His dark head fell forward against the thick blackness of hair on his chest. His golden eyes dissolved into weak, inane yellow, and his mouth loosened. He wanted to fight, but it was useless. This shepherd was one of the sea people he had come to see, and one way or another he would see him. Dark blood filled his aching eyes. He felt himself led, nudged, forced first this way, then that. A golden hound slipped by, gave him a pressure which roiled him over into a current of sea blood. It ran down past where the shepherd stood with only a harp for a weapon. Stark wondered dimly whether these other warriors in the flock, drifting, were dead or alive like himself. He had another surprise coming. They were all Ron's men, men of Falga, silver men with burning green hair, Ron's men. One of them, a huge warrior colored like powdered salt, wandered aimlessly by on another tide, his green eyes dull. He looked dead. What business had the sea people with the dead warriors of Falga? Why the hounds and the shepherd's harp? Questions eddied like lifted silt in Stark's tired, hanging head. Eddied and settled flat. Stark joined the pilgrimage. The hounds, with deaf flickerings of wings, ushered him into the midst of the flock. Bodies brushed against him, cold bodies. He wanted to cry out. The cords of his neck constricted. In his mind the cry went forward. Are you alive, men of Falga? No answer, but the drift of scarred pale bodies. The eyes in them knew nothing. They had forgotten Falga. They had forgotten Ron for whom they had lifted blade. Their tongues lolling in mouths asked nothing but sleep. They were getting it. A hundred, two hundred strong they made a strange human river slipping toward the gigantic city wall. Stark called Conan and his bitter enemies going together. From the corners of his eyes, Stark saw the shepherd move. The shepherd was like Ron and her people who had years ago abandoned the sea to live on land. The shepherd seemed colder, more fish-like, though. There were small translucent webs between the thin fingers and spanning the long-toed feet. Thin, scar-like gills in the shadow of his tapered chin, lifted and sealed in the current, eating, taking sustenance from the blood-colored sea. The harp spoke and the golden hounds obeyed. The harp spoke and the bodies twisted uneasily, as in a troubled sleep. A triple cord of it came straight at Stark. His fingers clenched, and the dead shall walk again. Another ironic ripple of music, and Ron's men will rise again, this time against her. Stark had time to feel a brief, bewildered shivering before the current hurled him forward. 
clamoring drunkenly, witlessly all about him. The dead, muscleless warriors of Falga tried to crush past him, all of them at once. Long ago some vast sea titan had dreamed of avenues struck from black stone, each stone the size of three men tall. There had been a dream of walls going up and up until they dissolved into scarlet mist. There had been another dream of sea gardens in which fish hung, like erotic flowers, on tendrils of sensitive film tissue. Whole beds of fish clung to garden base, like colonies of flowers aglow with sunlight. And on occasion a black, amoebic presence filtered by, playing the gardener, weeding out an amber flower here, an amethystine bloom there. And the sea titan had dreamed of endless balustrades and battlements of windowless turrets where creatures swayed like radium-skinned phantoms, carrying their green plumes of hair in their lifted palms and looked down with curious, insolent eyes from on high. Women with shimmering bodies like some incredible coral harvested and kept high over these black stone streets, each in its archway. Stark was alone. Falga's warriors had gone off along a dim subterranean vent, vanished. Now the faint beckoning of harp and the golden hounds behind him turned him down a passage that opened out into a large circular stone room, one end of which opened out into a hall. Around the ebon ceiling, slender schools of fish swam. It was their bright effulgence that gave light to the room. They had been there, breeding, eating, dying a thousand years, giving light to the place, and they would be there, breeding and dying, a thousand more. The harp faded until it was only a murmur. Stark found his feet. Strength returned to him. He was able to see the man in the center of the room well. Too well. The man hung in the fire-tide. Chains of wrought bronze held his thin fleshless ankles so he couldn't escape. His body desired it. It floated up. It had been dead a long time. It was gaseous with decomposition, and it wanted to rise to the surface of the Red Sea. The chains prevented this. Its arms weaved like white scarves before a sunken white face. Black hair trembled on end. End of chapter 3